The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So many people are confused about who Jesus is, and we are reminded every single year, without exception, since, since I've been a Christian anyway, whether it's Newsweek Magazine, Time Magazine, I mean, it's every single year they will do a feature article on who is Jesus, CNN, every year, either Christmas or Easter, and they get it wrong every year. And the reason they get it wrong is that sometimes they're trying to pull information about who Jesus is from sources other than the Bible. But one thing I want to communicate was there's only one source that tells us about who Jesus is, who he is, and what he did, and why he came. It's in the Bible. There's actually no other source to go to to find any reliable information about who Jesus is at all. Zero. So you can't go anywhere to find information that is reliable and authoritative about Jesus other than Scripture in the Bible. Well, what about Josephus? Mm, not really. He came later, he made a couple of ambiguous references. It has nothing to what Scripture has already clearly said. And even if what Josephus said was true, it needs to be subjected to the scrutiny of the Bible. It's just all there is to it. So the Bible is the only authoritative source about who Jesus is and what he did. So that's why we go to the Bible. That's what we're going to do today. So today's message is Jesus, the reason for the season. We look at John's perspective, John chapter 1. Typically Christmas, we'll look at uh, the birth stories in Matthew, and also in Luke, leading up to Christmas, when Jesus was actually born. Those very familiar stories, that's totally appropriate. Sometimes the Gospel of John is neglected at the time of Christmas about Jesus and just before his birth. But it's very significant what John has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what John does in John chapter 1, verse 13. tells us about Jesus Christ before he was born, leading up to his birth through Mary. But he doesn't just start at the time when Mary was pregnant. John goes back, way back before humanity, way back before creation, way back into eternity to talk about Jesus Christ in preparation for his coming into the world. So... It's a, a neat perspective uh, to look at John's telling of the Christmas story. So that's what we're going to do today. And I just divided it up into four main points there we'll share. Uh, and we'll look at those together. Before I do, we need to be reminded, if you're paying attention at all to the news, people are talking about religion. Uh, they are talking about the largest religion in the world with over one billion adherents. That would be Islam. There are some militant Islams, uh, Muslims, I should say, wreaking havoc in the world, known as ISIS, so people are talking about them. And as a result, people are talking, uh, debating the true meaning of Islam and its religion. And at the same time, uh, even American politicians are talking about Islam and other religions of the world. And even Jesus' name is being invoked for the last two to three weeks on a regular basis in this conversation from our politicians about religion. And we keep hearing, at least I do, over and over again, all religions are good. All religions are the same. All reli- this is, these are really like quotes. All religions believe the same thing about Jesus. That's the continuous message we're hearing from politicians. Politicians have actually no business talking about what the Bible has to say about religion or Jesus. So we need to be discerning. We need to stand up for Jesus Speak the truth. Uh, 
So before we look at John 1, I want to read from Matthew. You don't have to go there. I just want to read a couple of passages. Here's the Lord Jesus, the real Jesus in the Bible, Matthew 24. This is the end of his life. He lived for 30 years before he even did any ministry. Then his ministry was about three three years where he preached, did miracles, he taught. Uh, And then just before his willing death on behalf of sinners, he tried to encourage his 12 apostles or the 11 that were faithful to prepare them for his departure. And he gave many prophecies to warn them, to encourage them so that they would be ready, prepared, they wouldn't be shocked. And some of those predictions and prophecies are in Matthew 24. And here are some of the predictions that Jesus made. Matthew 24, 11, he said, Many false prophets will arise. What's a false prophet? A false prophet is somebody who gets up and speaks authoritatively about religion and about God, and they do it in an illegitimate manner. They don't speak truth. They speak contradiction. They undermine what God has revealed through Scripture. And Jesus says categorically, false prophets will arise. You can guarantee it. They will always be with us. They'll be with us till the end of the age. And Jesus didn't just say false prophets. He said many false prophets. Many false prophets will arise. You can count it. You can guarantee it. And as soon as Jesus died, ascended, and went back into heaven, immediately in the middle of the true church, false prophets began to arise and create confusion, deception, and havoc. And false prophets have been with us ever since. There are false prophets today. Uh, And they come in all kinds of uh, shapes and sizes and forms and contexts. But this is a prophecy that Jesus gave that is true and continues to be true. So we need to take heed of this. Many false prophets will arise. Uh, They have arisen. We have false prophets all around us today. So we need to be discerning. Keep going back to Scripture to see what the Bible says about Jesus. And these false prophets have themes that they like to reiterate or emphasize. One of those, Jesus tells us in verse 24, false prophets will arise. And he even calls them false. They will speak of false Christs, false messiahs. So Jesus said, be warned, be on the lookout. Throughout the course of history, there will always be false prophets, false teachers, speaking false things about religion. And part of the thing, there will also be people pointing to false Christs, imposters, false Jesuses, if you will, another Jesus. In other words, people will literally be talking about Jesus but misrepresent who he is. And that's exactly what Paul said in Second Corinthians, and I want to read a verse there where... A little later on, the Apostle Paul gets saved. He's commissioned by God to be an apostle, a church planner, a pastor, but also a prophet. He wrote 13 books in the New Testament. One of them was in 2 Corinthians. And the Apostle Paul gives this prophecy about this truth that Jesus said that there will be false prophets. And in 2 Corinthians 11, 13, Paul says the same thing. Such men are false prophets. False prophets. What do they do? Well, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus, there it is, another Jesus, a fake Jesus, a pseudo-Jesus, the most dangerous kind of Jesus that is preached and taught is the one that is most similar to the Jesus in the Bible, but is not the true one. And Paul calls that, that is another Jesus. That is a false Jesus. Beware of that Jesus. And we're hearing that today. All religions believe in Jesus. No, they don't. Many religions talk about Jesus. Islam talks about Jesus. Jesus is in their Quran, mentioned over 90 times, but they don't teach biblical truth about Jesus in the Quran. 
It's another Jesus. And Paul says here it's a false Jesus. They preach another Jesus whom we have not preached. It's the false Jesus. And the people who do this are false prophets, deceitful workers, strong language, disguising themselves as messengers or apostles of Christ. Beware of them. Watch out for imposters and pseudo-Christs and false imposters claiming to be Jesus when they're not. Uh, and then one more passage of warning is in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, where the Apostle Paul tells the Galatians a church that he started, that he planted, that he pastored, that he knew, and immediately false teachers came in. By the way, false teachers are usually motivated by and strategically placed in those churches by Satan himself. They're messengers of Satan, says Paul. And at the church of Galatia, sure, it was a true church, and all of a sudden they were being infested with false teaching. And one of the things that was being perpetuated there that was false, dangerous, deadly, was false truth about who Jesus is, and with it a false gospel. False gospel means good news. Jesus is the good news. And Paul's and warned, and he said, in your church, be careful, watch out for false gospels and other gospels which aren't gospels at all. And if anybody comes and preaches a different gospel other than we preached about who Jesus really is, let that man or that person be accursed, be anathema, eternally condemned. That's what G, uh, Paul said through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is no laughing matter. It's the most serious thing uh, in the world and in the earth because eternal souls are at stake. That's why it's such the strong language. So the Bible is clear. The world is going to be confused about who Jesus is. We need a clarion call to go back to Scripture to be reminded of the simple truth of who He is. John lays this out beautifully for us, not exhaustively, but some of the priorities about who Jesus Christ is and hence what Christmas is all about, celebrating the true Jesus that is given in the Bible. Let's go ahead and look at it in John chapter 1. Take it section by section. First, we're going to go to point number one, and that's the first two verses about who Jesus is. And Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. Now, there's many things that John says here about Jesus. I'm highlighting his main points, and it just so happens that the points that John highlights are actually distinctives about Jesus that only the Bible teaches. There is no other religious book in the world that teaches that Jesus is an eternal being. You talk to a Muslim today, they will tell you, yeah, we believe in Jesus. He was one of uh, many great messengers and prophets. And they believe also that he's a created being, that he's not eternal. That is not true. That's a false Jesus. That is to be condemned and rejected. It undermines Christ and it undermines the gospel. It undermines basic Christianity. Jesus said in John chapter 10, he, he talked about false prophets, false teachers, people who misrepresent him. He used strong language talking about himself to warn his people. And he said people that come along and speak about different truth, different gospel, a different Christ, a different Jesus, a different me, a different religion, he called them thieves and robbers. He called them dangerous. He called them motivated by Satan. He called them deceptive. They seek to kill and destroy. Those were Jesus' words. Sobering, sobering. That's why it needs to be taken so seriously. It's the most basic and fundamental truth to Christianity. It's the heart of Christianity, and that's why it's an absolute priority. It needs to be defended accordingly. And Scripture is definitive on the matter. And so John 
lays it out clearly of who Jesus is. Jesus is eternal. Let's go ahead and look at it. By the way, Hinduism claims to believe in Jesus. That's one of the largest religions in the world as well. And we're told, yeah, they all believe in the same thing about Jesus. No, they don't. Islam doesn't believe Jesus is eternal. Islam doesn't believe... By the way, Islam doesn't even believe Jesus was crucified. They reject that notion. Uh, Hinduism, same thing. They don't believe that Jesus is an eternal created... Or is he eternal, but that he's rather a created being like the rest of us. He's no different than the rest of us. We're just like him. Uh, so that's Hinduism as well. So they undermine the very essence of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John makes it emphatically clear, clearing to the whole world, one of the basic fundamental truths we need to know about the true Jesus, and that is verse 1 and 2, that Jesus is eternal. Let's go ahead and look at it. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's amazing, profound, poignant statement that is so loaded and rich in terms of its meaning and implications. It can't be exhausted in terms of its truth and also practical application of how we think about the Lord Jesus Christ. John starts out his gospel and says, in the beginning, in the beginning, John was a Jew. He was raised in a synagogue. He was raised under the Torah. He, was, he probably had memorized Genesis 1 in Hebrew, Genesis 1-1, like every other young Jewish boy. And he would recall and know from memory that Genesis 1-1, the scriptures from God began with that phrase, in the beginning. That's Genesis 1-1. That's how the, be- the book, uh, the Bible begins, in the beginning. In the beginning, God is what Genesis 1-1 says. Every Jew knew that. John knew that. John's writing to people who have an understanding and knowledge of the Old Testament. So it is not a mistake. It's not a coincidence when John pens his gospel to his believing audience, that immediately he wants to take them back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. Because anybody that knows anything about Scripture and the Bible, when you say in the beginning, usually we are thinking Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, and creation. And that is exactly what John is trying to do. In the beginning. And what we think of in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where our mind goes to. We're immediately thinking about almighty, uncreated, eternal God. How amazing He is and how He created all things. Out of nothing. That's what God did. That's what Genesis declares. That is powerful. That is awesome. And he did it with his infinite power and just the declaration of his word. And God said, and God said, and God said. And that's how he created. He created all things out of nothing with the power of his word through declaration. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is everything in the entire universe. Every Jew knew that. And so John is writing his gospel and he says, in the beginning, echoing back to Genesis 1.1, instead of saying God, he says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. He introduces a very specific person called the Word, whoever this is. And the Word was with God. God was in the beginning at the time of creation, but with God, the Father, was also the Word. Who was the Word? Well, He was with God the Father. He's distinct from God the Father, but He was there at the beginning before creation in Genesis 1.1. He was with God. He Himself was God. He Himself was deity. Who is this Word that was with God the Father in the beginning before all things that were created and indeed created all things? He tells us in verse 14, and the Word that he introduced in verse 1, and the Word, this man, this person that I'm referring to, became flesh, became a human being, took on human flesh. This Word who existed with the Father in the beginning before he had a body because he existed eternally as God at some point after he created his creation, came down to those that he created and took on a human body. He's referring to Jesus Christ. 
So John the Apostle is saying, in the beginning before God created all things, and when God the Father created the heavens and the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ was with God the Father before all things were created. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh. Jesus who was deity, Jesus who was eternal, Jesus who was uncreated, Jesus who did not have a body in the beginning in Genesis 1-1 at the time of creation, but existed and had a nature equal with God the Father, and the Word became flesh. At some point in history, Jesus came down from heaven where He lived for all eternity to the earth that He created, and He took on a human body. That's what that means. That's called the incarnation. It's not when He began to exist. He always existed. That's when He began to exist as a human being. And the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us, says John the Apostle. Jesus lived with us. I knew Him. I walked with Him. He dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. Only God has true glory. Jesus had true glory because He was God in a body like no other. And John was beholden to it, overwhelmed by it, primarily the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the authority with which He spoke and acted as he perfectly represented God the Father, whom he came from and whom he existed with for all eternity. That's what John means. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. That's very specific, and it means he had a unique relationship with the Father like no other. What was that unique relationship? He existed eternally in eternity past with God the Father. That was the unique relationship. He always existed, him and the Father, and the Holy Spirit. God the Father, Jesus, who is God, and the Holy Spirit, who is God, have existed for all eternity. And they existed in eternity past before anything was created. Before the earth humans or angels were created, there was the triune God who existed eternally together in perfect unity. That, 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 that is mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. But He became a man full of glory, full of grace, He came as a Savior, full of grace. He came as a Savior to seek and to save those who were lost. But He wasn't going to compromise. He was also full of truth. Grace and truth, that's the perfect balance. It's not just grace and being nice to everybody, telling everything they want to hear. Oh, okay, we'll let you off. Yeah, no justice, no recourse, no consequences, no holiness, no wrath, no no consequences that are deserved. That's That's not God. That's not holiness. That's not appropriate. That's not right. So there is that blessed grace, but it's coupled with truth. That's perfect justice. That's who Jesus is. So going back, John says in verse 1 that Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, at the time before all creation, Jesus existed as the Word, as a person, and He was in union with God the Father and the Holy Spirit at the time of creation. That's what that means. In the beginning was the Word. The very verb means that Jesus was eternally in existence. He wasn't created. He didn't spring into existence. Even the verb used and the tense used means that he was always in that condition. So, he existed in the beginning with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Not only that, the Word was with the Father. The Word word Jesus, uh, at the time of creation, he was with the Father. Literally, he was toward the Father, face to face with the Father. What is that? That is equality. That is the greatest Intimacy known between two persons. In the beginning, before creation, Jesus was on an equal plane with God the Father. He was in His company, and He was intimate with the Father. And He was also distinct from the Father. That's the imagery being communicated very simply 
in the grammar of the words chosen. So Jesus existed before creation. He existence he existed separately from as a person from God the Father, yet equality with the Father and great intimacy with God the Father. Not only that, he adds in the last phrase regarding that intimacy, because he could be uh, intimate with the Father and not be equal to the Father. He could be subordinate to the Father in terms of his nature, his essence, his being, his person, but that's not the case because John says in the last verse that the Word was God. And he's not saying that the Word was the Father because he's using his definite articles very Specifically, definite article, the Word, Jesus, the person before creation who was with the Father, face-to-face with the Father, intimate with the Father, distinct from the Father, the Word was, specific verb being used, always in existence. And what was his relationship? Or what was his nature? He says, he was God himself, using the word God with no definite article. Meaning Jesus in His very nature was deity. Just as the Father is deity and God, Jesus also is deity and God and always has been so. He didn't become a God. He always has been God. And here's the difference between biblical Christianity and every other false religion and ideology on planet earth. Just about. I said, I referred to Hinduism, believes in Jesus. They say. But they literally believe Here's, this is from an authoritative Hindu teacher explaining to his followers of how they can evangelize Christians as they talk about Jesus. And he says, quote, that Hindus and Christians believe different things about Jesus. Quote, we Hindus believe teenage Jesus traveled across Southeast Asia learning yogic traditions returning home to be a guru to the Jews. And Jesus worked his way to God consciousness. What does that mean? Jesus was normal like anybody else, a man just like anybody else. Not eternal, because none of us are, as distinct persons. And Jesus had to become better and better by doing good works. Jesus worked his way to God consciousness. In other words, Jesus was a man who worked his way to become God. So if you could sum it all up, Hinduism teaches that Man becomes God. And the Bible teaches that God became man. They're polar opposites. Jesus, who has always been existent, eternal, almighty God, came down on earth and became a man. False religion says man can try to become a God by his works. That is wrong. So John is very helpful here. But So that's one of the most basic blessed truths. If you want to believe in Jesus, you've got to know who Jesus is. And it starts at the most fundamental level in terms of his nature and who he is. He is distinct. There's no one like him. He is majestic. He is God in a body, and he is eternal. He is uncreated. He is all-glorious. And we've got to understand that when we come to him. Point number two, not only is Jesus eternal. By the way, Jesus believed this about himself. This is John saying this about Jesus. Well, what about, did Jesus know that? Did Jesus believe that? Did Jesus ever say that? There are people, that's one of the main arguments of other religions that criticize the Bible. They say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, yeah, he did. Many times and in many different ways. And a couple of those times are in the Gospel of John. John 8, 58, he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as well as the public crowd. He's getting into a public debate with them. 
He's pointing out their sin. He's rebuking them. He reminds them because of their hardness of heart that they are of their father, the devil. He just called them sons of Satan in public, the most influential religious leaders of the day. They got infuriated. They tried to kill him by stoning him on the spot with stones, by the way. That's how mad they got. And in this dialogue back and forth, it culminates when they question who he is. Who are you to teach us? Who are you to uh, rebuke us? You're, you're just the son of a... You're, you're a bastard child. We don't even know who your dad is. That's literally what they said. And you're also a Samaritan. And you're filled with the devil. This is what they're telling Jesus. Who are you? How long do you think you've been around? You've seen Abraham? And then Jesus said in John 8, 58... He said before, well, as a matter of fact, you want to know how long I've been around? I'll tell you. The greatest Jew was Abraham. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they all did due homage to their blessed predecessor, Abraham, the first Jew. He was the greatest authority. He was the greatest patriarch. And so Jesus invokes the greatest patriarch. You want to know how long I've been around? The greatest Jew there ever was, Abraham, 2000 B.C.? I've been around longer than that. Before Abraham sprang into existence, that's the Greek verb that he uses. Before Abraham was created by Almighty God and sprang into existence for the first time as a human being, 2000 BC, before Abraham came into being, I am. That's what Jesus said. His verbs are specific. When he says, I am, he is quoting from Exodus 3.14. When God revealed his name to Moses and Moses said, God, can you tell me your name so that when I go try to rescue your people, I can tell them your personal name? And God said, my name is, and he said it in Hebrew, I am that I am. I am the eternally existent one. That is what Jesus quoted in John 8, 58, when he referred to himself and his name. Before Abraham was created and came into existence, 2,000 years ago, I am. I am the eternal existent one. I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh of the Old Testament who stood before Moses in 1400 B.C. I have been around for all eternity. I am uncreated. I am the eternal God. That's what he said. That's what he meant. They knew it. They considered it blasphemy. They tried to kill him on the spot. That's who Jesus is. He is eternal. That's just one example of Jesus explicitly claiming to be eternal. He does it again in John 17, verse 5, just before his death, where he's praying to the Father, and he's looking forward to returning to the Father by dying, rising again from the dead, and then ascending into heaven, back to the Father where he came from. And he said, Restore to me, Father, the glory that I had with you before the world was created. There's Jesus explicitly claiming he existed with the Father for all eternity in glorious, sinless, holy bliss with the Father. It's amazing. Jesus is eternal. Let's go on to point number two. And that's verses three through five. And that, that Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the creator. I can't think of another religion that believes this about Jesus. They think he's a product of creation or the greatest creation. No, Jesus is the creator. He was there in the beginning with the Father. All things came into being through him, through the word, through Jesus. All things in existence in the entire universe came into being, says John 3, through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10 says the same thing. Jesus, the Lord, laid the foundations of the world and the universe. Psalm 33, verse 6 says the same thing. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says the same thing, that Jesus 
created all things. All things came into being by him, for him, through him. He sustains all things. He preserves all things. He brought everything into existence. Well, I thought God the Father created all things. Well, he did. Well, I thought the Holy Spirit created all things, as the book of Job says. Well, he did. And Genesis 1, 2. And yet the testament of the New Testament, or the testimony of the New Testament, is that Jesus Christ also brought all things into existence. So who created all things? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God of the universe. And they each had a specific role that they did in perfect harmony with one another. And John is clear on that. All things came into being by him or through Jesus. The word and apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's a positive and negative statement put together, beautifully coupled, talking about that Jesus created all things. He is the creator. If he is the creator, we are his creation. We are the creation. We either know him or we don't. And if he is the creator, then he deserves our worship. If he's the creator. The Bible condemns false worship. The Bible condemns worshiping anything other than almighty God and calls it blasphemy. And if Jesus was not God, if he was just a man, if he was just a creation and we worshiped Jesus, that would be blasphemy according to the Bible. But the Bible is clear. We need to worship Jesus. Why? Because he is God. He's the creator of all things. Verse 4 says, in him, he also gives creative life. Everything about us. In him was life. In Jesus was life. Jesus called himself, I am the life. He is the one that gives spiritual life through salvation. He's the one that gives physical life, bios, bio, biological life to all, every being that comes into this world. Jesus gives them life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's the one that enlightens all people so they can truly understand reality in this world, and it's only by a relationship with him. So he's the creator of physical life. He's the creator of spiritual life. Verse 5, he's the light of the world. Verse 5 says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So all that means is that Jesus came into this world as the God-man, sinless, perfect, perfectly representing Almighty God the Father. And as He ministered in this world for three and a half years, for the most part, people didn't understand who He was. His very own people, the Jews, uh, they, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. Some did, but the majority did not. They didn't comprehend it. They didn't grasp it. They actually, many of them didn't want it because John 3 says they loved their sin. So the main thing that keeps a person away from recognizing who Jesus is is not just ignorance. It's not even primarily ignorance. It is primarily sin and a love for sin. I don't want God in my life. I don't want a Lord in my life. I don't want a Savior in my life. I don't need a Savior. As they cling to their sin, that's the testimony of Jesus Himself. So Jesus is the Creator. He made all things. Let's go on to number three. So Jesus is eternal. He is the Creator. By the way, those emphasize His nature as God. We say Jesus is the God-man. So the first two points emphasize Jesus is deity, that is God. The second two points emphasize that He is a man, the God-man. It's a beautiful compliment. So now we'll look to verses 6 through 13, emphasizing His human nature, 6 through 8. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus that we celebrate and magnify and talk about at Christmas? Well, He's the eternal God. He is also the Creator. And in number 3, Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah. The Old Testament I don't, I don't know if you've ever read the whole Old Testament. It's, it's a lot of information. Actually, there are a lot of Christians who have actually never read the entire Old Testament. It's a challenge. It's a lot of material there. It covers a long, long period of time from really the beginning of creation all the way up to the New Testament. If you're a Christian, you should read the entire Old Testament. 
It's like seeing a great movie and missing the entire middle of the movie. Yeah, I saw the, see that great movie? Yeah, I loved it. But I only saw the first 15 minutes and the last 10 minutes. No, you didn't see the movie then. You're missing the storyline. And that's what the Old Testament is. 39 books in the Old Testament. Thousands of years of history from the very beginning leading up to the culmination and the coming of Christ to the world. You need to know that story. And God is the only one that gives an authoritative, inspired, infallible, inerrant description of world history from the very beginning of creation down to the time of Christ, and it's called In Your Old Testament. It's a blessed journey. And in 6 through 8, as a Jew, John the Apostle knows, as a master of the Old Testament and raised in the Old Testament, now an apostle of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament finding fulfillment in the coming of the Messiah for which it taught about for 4,000 years. It's said by Bible scholars that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, in the Old Testament. Many of those fulfilled at His first coming. When He came 2,000 years ago, John the Apostle knew that. John the Apostle believed in that. And he just gives us a little snapshot. Here is one fulfillment identifying who Jesus is. One book in the Old Testament predicted that Elijah would come. Another Elijah would come. Elijah was a prophet of God. And he, he announced uh, before... He went before God and proclaimed... Uh, that God was coming through the person of the Messiah. And then one of the books in the Old Testament predicted that another Elijah would come just before the Messiah comes. And then we come to the New Testament, and there's John the Baptist. He's a preacher. He's like an Old Testament prophet. And he has one mission, and it's repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And he baptized Jesus, and he pointed everybody to Jesus. That's all he ever did. Most selfless guy in the world. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is the one. He's from the Old Testament. He's the Old Testament fulfillment. He's the one that God was talking about. Messiah, Mashiach, the anointed one, the king, the prophet, the priest, sent by God, who represents God. That's what that means. And John the the Baptist's job was to point out, highlight, and accentuate Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and everything it said about the Messiah. That's who Jesus is. So not only is He almighty, eternal, infinite God, He became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, born of Mary in Nazareth, grew up, and then began to fulfill all these prophecies. That's what he's highlighting here. There's convincing historical proof of the reality of the truth of the Bible and who Jesus is. So there came a man, John the Baptist, sent from God, spoke authoritatively, whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light. That's Jesus. Why? So that all might believe in Jesus. All might have a relationship with God by believing in Jesus. That's the only way you can have a proper proper relationship with God the Creator is through Jesus. That's it. There are no other ways. It is exclusive. The Bible is clear on that. The New Testament is clear on that. Jesus was clear on that. No other religion believes that. It's common to hear, oh, there's many ways to Jesus. No, there's not. Jesus Himself said it. John 14, 6. I am the way, the singular way, the only way. I am the way to the Father who is in heaven and no one gets to heaven except through me. John 14, 6, Jesus said that. His, one of his main apostles reiterated that in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where Peter said, There is no other name under heaven which men can declare by which to know God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is exclusive. There is only one way. There is only one religion. Every other religion, it is false. It is a deception. It is dangerous. Jesus is the only true Messiah the only one appointed by God to be the light and Savior of the world. 
He is the God-man. So Jesus is eternal. Jesus is creator. Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah. And then finally, number four, Jesus is the Savior of the world. 9 through 13. So humanity was plunged into sin and separation from God from the first disobedience of our first two humans, Adam and Eve, who were real people from which all of us come from their loins. We inherit a sin nature. We are born separated from God. We are born children of wrath. And that's why Jesus said, you must be born again. You need to be spiritually reborn so that your relationship with the Creator God can be restored and so that you can know Him personally. The only way you can do that is through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the message of the New Testament. It's called the Gospel. Gospel means good news. Jesus came preaching when He began preaching publicly at age 30 for three and a half years. He came preaching, doing one thing, and that was preaching the good news. That's Mark 1, 14 and 15. He came preaching the gospel, the good news. What was the good news? That sinners who have been estranged and separated from God, sinners who are already condemned to the wrath of God, can be rescued, can be saved from their sin, not by their own works, but only by the work of Jesus Christ, His sacrificial work, His willing sacrificial substitutionary work that He did, living His perfect life for 33 and a half years, but primarily by dying on the cross, and getting executed and absorbing the wrath of the Father when He hung on the cross for six hours. That's what Jesus was doing. He was absorbing eternal, holy wrath from the Father as He hung on the cross. He did it willingly. He did it knowingly. He did it in fulfillment of the Old Testament. He did it as the Savior of the world. He did it as the infinite sacrifice, as the God-man. He did it for any sinner that would come to Him and repent and seek Him as Savior. That was His mission. Jesus was born to die. He was born to die as a substitute for sinners, that they might be forgiven of all of their sin, rescued, if you will, because that's what Jesus said. Why did Jesus come into the world? Jesus told us many times. He told us in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. What's a ransom? A ransom is the price you pay to rescue helpless slaves. That's why Jesus came. He wanted to rescue us. We were helpless slaves. We were. I've never been a slave. Yeah, you were. I was too. We were slaves of sin, slaves of Satan, slaves of eternal death. Jesus came to rescue from that. That's why He came. That is the meaning of Christmas. That is a blessed reality. Why else did Jesus come? Well, in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's it. Jesus came the first time to seek and find sinners and woo them to Himself as the Savior. That's why He came. That was His purpose. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, John chapter 3, because the world was already condemned and judged by God. Jesus came to rescue sinners from that condemned world by His substitutionary, sacrificial, infinite, perfect death on the cross where all of God's wrath was absorbed. And then Jesus was buried, as the Scriptures said He would be. He rose again on the third day, as the Scriptures said He would be. He ascended on high, as the Scriptures predicted He would do. He reigns on high as King of kings and Lord of lords and the seeking Savior even to this day. And He seeks sinners through the message of His gospel, through the Word of God, which is living and active. He does it also through Christians who proclaim His truth. He also seeks and saves sinners by... Uh, working on people's hearts through their conscience with that truth. He also seeks and saves sinners 
by prayer that saints say uh, on behalf of unbelievers as God is working in so many different ways and venues trying to rescue people from their sin. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is the heart of a gracious God. That was Jesus' mission. Jesus is the Savior. And here's how John says it, starting at verse 9. There was the true light, which is Jesus, came into this world. He enlightens every man. How does he do that? Every human being has a conscience, an imprint of God's existence on their very soul from the time they're born. Then it's enlightened even more when they hear biblical truth. Verse 10, he was in the world, so he came and was born of Mary. That's what that means. God came down and he was born of Mary. He actually existed in this world. He was the God-man. He lived for 33 and a half years. He had no human father because he was born of a virgin, miraculously. No one has ever done that. The world was made through him. The very world that he came to was made by him. And yet the world didn't know him. Most of the people rejected him. Crucify him. Crucify him is what they said. But God didn't give up on humanity. He's a patient God. He's a gracious God. He continues to woo sinners who scorn him. Verse 11, he came to his own. He gets more specific. Not only did he come to the world, he came to his own. Who's that? He came to the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jew. A full-blooded Jew. And he came to Israel as the Old Testament predicted he would. He was born in Bethlehem as the Old Testament predicted he would. He practiced Old Testament Jewish religion faithfully. He came to his own people. He gave the gospel message. He said he came to rescue them. And for the most part, they rejected him in his day. He had a little bit of a falling. People followed him at times out of fascination and to get free stuff. But in the end... Almost all abandoned him except the faithful few. That's why it says he came to his own. He came to the Jews. And those who were his own did not receive him. So those who were responsible for his death were the leaders of the Jewish religion. The scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And they condemned him to death. But nevertheless, God is gracious. He continues to work on the hearts of people. He continues to be a gracious-seeking Savior. He is the God of the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth chance. That's why when Jesus was dying on the cross, it's amazing. And he's looking down at those who cried for his death. He didn't condemn them from the cross. God burned them up. He didn't. He prayed a prayer and he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive these people. Forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. They don't understand the full implications. Many of them. So many that were there in the audience watching him die on the cross actually got saved later in their life. They heard the truth. They were convicted by God's Spirit. Their eyes were illuminated by the gracious work of God. And they came to see Jesus for who He really was, the blessed, glorious Savior. One of them was a Roman garden centurion standing there for six to eight hours at the cross watching Jesus. And after all those hours was pierced to the heart and came to believe in Jesus for who He truly was. God is a gracious God. He's a patient God. Do you have relatives, those of you who are Christian? who are not believers? Have you given up on them? Have you stopped praying for them? Have you stopped trusting God to change their life? Can't. God is not willing that any should perish. We continue to pray on their behalf and and plead with God to be gracious and merciful on their behalf. He's the blessed Savior. And people will respond. Verse 12, But as many as receive... Not all reject Him. Not all. But as many as received him, 
there will be people who will respond and receive the Lord Jesus. Some, some people it takes a long time, but they will. They will accept the message. They will believe the message. They'll put away their rebellion. To these people who are softened, who are enlightened, who humble themselves, who come to God, who want to embrace Christ as the Savior and Lord because their hearts have been prepared through the gospel and God's amazing work in His Holy Spirit, but as many as received Him to them, to these people, to these repentant, humble people, God gave them the right to become children of God. God has prepared them and God is going to save them. That is awesome. That is the good news. To them, He gave the right to become children of God, even to those, this is key, not who work their way to Godhood or work their way to God consciousness or follow all the rules who are good legalists. No, those who believe in His name. There it is. Salvation is by grace through faith apart from works. It's not what we do. It is what Jesus did. It's believing in Him, His gospel, His message, His person. It's all of God. The only thing we bring to the salvation transaction is our sin and a prayer of repentance. God, be merciful to me, the sinner, said the one who was saved in the Gospel of Luke. And they're saved by God, verse 13. And when you are saved, you're, you aren't born of blood or the will of man. It's, it's not a human endeavor. It's not a work of humanity. Nor is it the will of man. It is of God. Salvation is of God. It is holy of God. It is initiated by God. It is orchestrated by God. It is carried out by God. It is sustained by God. He is in charge. It is His plan. It was planned in eternity past. He carries, out, carries it out in history, in your life. He's the initiator. And that's why Jonah, in Jonah chapter 2, said this prayer. And he said, salvation is of the Lord. It's part of his prayer. That's awesome. Salvation is of the Lord. That was after he got burped out of the fish. And he realized God did that. God is the one who rescues. God is the one who saves. God is the one who is gracious. Salvation is of the Lord. That is the Christmas message. Amen? Salvation is of the Lord. And God, help us to share that message wherever we go. And anything we can use as a help and a tool. And then after you are able to plant the seed, continue praying. God, be gracious. God, salvation is of you. God, you're a merciful God. We know that. Lord Jesus, you came to seek and to save. Continue your work that you might be glorified. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the Christmas season that you afford us in our country, in our society, in our community, at least for this time where we have tremendous liberties. We have amazing freedom to worship You, to speak of You, to evangelize on Your behalf, to pray to You, to be a light for You, to debate the truth for You without recourse many times. These are blessed, amazing and really passing freedoms. God, help us to be good stewards of these, to be appreciative and thankful for these, to not take these for granted. We thank You for the glorious Gospel. Jesus, thank You for being a blessed Savior. Thank You for loving Your creation.
Thank you for absorbing the wrath of God that we can be saved through death and resurrection. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Continue through your Holy Spirit and the power of your word to work on the hearts of those that we know who don't know you yet. God, soften them, woo them, bring them to you, save their soul. We commit them to you. And this day we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.